and the majority of those are in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. In terms of the intersection with HIV infection, we think the overlap is that around 4 to 8 million HPV, HIV co-infected persons in the world. Um, maybe a little more. The surveys uh, through much of Sub-Saharan Africa are very incomplete in most countries and many regions. And there's, in fact, wide regional variation uh, depending on uh, a number of differences in cultural practices that affects them. In the world of HIV, we, we began to think a lot about hep B as a factor in the mortality uh, following this analysis by Claude Thea and Johns Hopkins in the next cohort, uh, where patients with uh, co-infection of hep B or HIV had significantly greater liver-related mortality compared to those who were with or HIV alone. Um, I'm suggesting that, that there was something way back then that we should have started paying more attention to. And then that was further validated in the DAV study uh, looking at independent predictors of liver-related death, uh, where the focus of the initial research in that cohort, a lot of it in the liver things, was related to BC. We came out not far behind as an increased relative risk of, of death from liver disease. And keep in mind that in Western countries, uh, liver disease associated death is the second leading cause after untreated AIDS directly related complications of death in those with HIV infection. More recently, Marina uh, Klein uh, published the uh, analysis from the NA-Accord study, which broke the populations infected with Hep B and Hep C into three ART eras. Uh, the early era defined as starting in 96, when the protease and interface cocktails became available, the middle era, and the modern era. And, uh, if we look at, at the graph on the right, there's a couple of things that stand out. First, triple infection, HCV, HPV, HIV, is associated with the highest incidence of uh, liver-related deaths and end-stage liver disease development, uh, followed by HBV, followed by HCV. So a little, little flip compared to the DAT study. But more important, most of these dots are clustered, indicating that in each of these eras, we actually made no difference. There was little impact on, uh, on liver-related mortality. So uh, it means that, that we still have a ways to go. The other thing I want you to be aware of comes from the HPV model infection literature. This is uh, one of the most important studies in the field, is the REVEAL study, uh, which was a large, multi-decade, public study performed in Taiwan. Among the things we learned from that is the HPV viral level to the development of liver cancer. In places where there were patients have been followed for a long time, uh, including Taiwan and Hong Kong, that the leading cause of death in middle aged men is death from outside personnel. So uh, we're starting to see some bending of the curve since vaccination programs were put into place a couple of decades ago. But uh, clearly, for those infected, there's a close relationship to HPV viral load, and that's something that, again, has not been well appreciated in the HIV community. And in fact, HPV viral load that is not fully suppressed represents a significant risk in development. So let's talk a little bit about the hepatitis B virus. It's a 
in the adenovirus family, there's a relatively narrow host range of adenoviruses. They don't seem to cross species. Uh, there are adenoviruses in woodchucks and ducks and California beachy ground squirrels and, uh, and, and humans. And uh, uh, efforts to affect cross species, uh, which I and others have worked on over the years, uh, are really not generally effective. The uh, virus itself is, is shown here. There's an outer shell of the hepatitis B surface antigen. There are inner core proteins which surround the, uh, the genomic material. It is uh, HPV DNA, which we'll look at in a little more detail here. This is a very complex uh, genomic structure. It's a partially double-stranded DNA that carries with it its own polymerase that it codes for. And, uh, and the way it's highly efficient compact structure, because there is on both strands, there are overlapping segments that result in coding that lead to the development of the main proteins, the polymerase, the surface antigen protein, the pre core and core proteins. And then, which are all structural, and then the X protein, which uh, is a transactivating protein that is associated with development of the cancer. Um, when we treat patients, particularly when we treat patients improperly for hepatitis B or incompletely, we begin to develop mutations in the. Uh, in the surface or in the polymerase, which then translate to changes in the surface protein, which could have made uh, vaccine escape mutants that no longer work with standard vaccines. So let's look in a little more detail at the life cycle because it's going to be important back to later uh, in relation to treatment. So the virus binds to a specific receptor that uh, we'll look at in a little more detail later. It's, uh, it's a sodium toracolate co-transporter protein on the surface of a hepatocyte. And it uncoats, enters the cytoplasm, where it finally releases its uh, genomic core that doubles partially double-stranded DNA, which is transported by an active process to the nucleus. It's in a form called a relaxed coiled DNA, which gets transformed by a series of enzymatic processes to CCC DNA, or covalently closed circular DNA, which is essentially a mini chromosome. And, uh, as such, is subject to genetic <laughs> modification um, and becomes a persistent part of many parasites within the system. That becomes the source of transcription of the messenger RNAs, which go to form the X, the pre-surface and surface, or pre-genomic RNA. The pre-genomic RNA is what codes for hepatitis B E antigen, the polymerase, um, and leads to active <coughs> replication when there's an active process to the secretion of hepatitis B E antigen, except in those with long-standing infection who, who develop frequently a particular mutation that leads a pre-core mutation that leads to a stop codon and prevents that from happening even though active replication continues. And the pre-genomic RNA and the polymerase get packaged into a newly formed capsid, uh, which then undergoes, as the capsid is forming, reverse transcription back into the the DNA, uh, the relaxed coil DNA, which then, in the endoplasmic reticulum, is enveloped by the core or the uh, surface antigen, uh, 
that uh, is being made separately off of these strands, and ultimately we get body of the virus out of the hepatocyte. You also get secretion of sub-viral particles, and in fact, the discovery uh, of hepatitis B was, was the discovery of the Australian antigen. The Australian antigen was actually not a virus or a particle, it was all of this excess sub-viral particles that occurs in filaments and, uh, and small acosahedral structures that have no genetic material in them but serve a variety of functions, one of which we will look at later, that uh, probably help the virus maintain its chronic disease state. The natural history is complicated. And, uh, so I'm going to sort of take you through the typical features, but I'll tell you in a moment why it's complicated. So a patient becomes infected, and if it's early in life, they enter a phase called the immune tolerance phase. High levels of HPV DNA, but very low levels of serum ALT, indicating little or no hepatocyte injury. After a period of years, sometimes 20 or 30 years of that immune tolerance phase, the patients begin to generate a reaction against those infected hepatocytes. And uh, that reaction results in a series of up and down ALT levels and simultaneously decreases in HPV DNA. Um, if the immune system wins, or at least partially wins, the uh, patient converts from E antigen positive to anti-HPE and enters an essentially inactive carrier state with low levels of HPV DNA replication and low levels of ALT indicating minimal injury is occurring. And then that patient can reactivate with a trigger. Triggers include things like, like getting chemotherapy, particularly rituximab, but uh, we see reactivations almost every summer when that uh, a patient with chronic hepatitis B gets into some poison ivy and they go to the local doc in the box, they're given a five-day menstrual dose pack, and uh, all of a sudden, a few weeks later, they're bright yellow and not feeling good, and they've had a reactivation of hepatitis B. Any one of these stages can change to any of the other stages at any time in the course of the illness. So while this is the typical path, uh, many patients don't follow a typical path. The problem for those of you that are clinicians is when you see a patient, you're seeing them at a single slice in time, and from that slice in time, you have to figure out which one of these stages they're in because the management is different in each stages. Broadly, these patients get watched, these patients get treated, these patients get watched, these patients you worry about treating because they could go back to this. So, so you have to know where your patient is at in the process, and sometimes you can't figure that out in a single visit. It takes time. There's also occult hepatitis B. So these patients are HBSAG negative. They are often, but not always, anti-core IgM positive alone, meaning without detection of anti-HBS. Uh, they have circulating HPV DNA in serum, and uh, the reason why this occurs, at least a proportion are associated with specific mutations that render the test for HBSAG ineffective, or they don't secrete HBSAG beyond what's needed to create date particles, the full viral particles, but they don't have the subviral particles that are actually how we still detect typical mm -hmm. FB infection, detection of HBSAG. They're significant because in the setting of transplant, a patient that uh, gets an occult FB organ into a recipient the recipient, if they are not, uh, have, don't have high titer antibody, 
they will actually develop acute FV. In the setting of HIV, this is very common, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. The rates described between 25 and 50 percent of all FV patients in sub-Saharan Africa, and seems to be highly associated there with development of hepatocytic carcinoma. And uh, there is also the issue of recurrence after Hep C infection. For those of you that treat Hep C, uh, you would know that, that not long ago, about six months ago, the FDA, after getting a series of reports, issued a black box warning saying that you need to check for a pulp Hep B, HPV DNA, in all patients treated for Hep C because those patients are at risk of having a flare of disease which is suppressed by the presence of the hep C. When you cure the hep C, the hep B comes back and actually makes the patient sick. So that's a lot of trouble for a virus that has been vaccine preventable since 1981. Uh, and I had the uh, the opportunity to actually do my apprenticeship in one of these trials in the original <coughs> vaccine trials in New York among gay men. And, uh, and that was kind of cool, and I thought that Hep B would probably go away then, but obviously it has not. So we do want to prevent disease in our patients, and uh, particularly among those with HIV and among men who have sex with men, uh, people have studied risk behavior modification. Um, that was not a highly effective strategy. In Amsterdam, they did a very nice study where they showed that an intensive strategy to vaccinate gay men for Hep B led to increased risky sexual practices. And so uh, that is not risk behavior modification that we'd like to see. Um, we're going to look at some data on vaccination and prep and treatment for prevention. So here's the problem in the setting of HIV with the vaccination. In a non-HIV infected patient, three doses of 20 micrograms uh, of vaccine protein, which is recombinant surface antigen protein, gives about a 93 to 95% protective efficacy against Hep B. Um, and unclear whether it's for life, but because you can get infected if your titer falls low, which most people who are immunocompetent tend not to say. But in those with HIV, response rates to vaccine, the standard vaccination series are significantly lower and range from below 20% to, to right about 70% in various prospective trials that have been performed. So the question is, what can we do about that? How should we change our practices when we manage a patient with Hep B who does not have uh, previous vaccination, uh, or who has not achieved a protective antibody titer. This is a study from uh, the NRS in France, a uh, multi-center trial looking at vaccination of antibody-negative patients who received the standard dose, three doses, or four doses of the double, this actually should say 40 as well, either IM or intradermal dosing with a primary outcome of what is considered a protective antibody level, which is greater than 10 million international units per ml uh, one month after the completion of the third or fourth vaccine. And uh, the, uh, the protective efficacy rates were the highest in the four-dose 40-microgram IM if one looks at the geometric mean titers of response during that study, they were also significantly higher in that arm compared to either the intradermal four-dose arm or the three-dose arm. And then a subsequent follow-up study uh, looked at the long-term protective efficacy and protection was greatest in, again, the intramuscular 40 microgram dose 
on the four doses. So uh, this has actually become our practice in HIV-positive patients is we give four doses up front, and for anyone who has not previously responded to a vaccine series, this is also what we do. And uh, it, it's not perfect, but it's better than anything else we have. There's been numerous other adjuvant studies, and they have uniformly not been effective. Were all of these patients on ARVs and uh, at normal CD4 levels at the time that the vaccination was done? Or? No, but they were all over 200. They were, they were. There is a cutoff around 200 where you begin to see improved responses. So the other question is, what about pre-exposure prophylaxis? And you could ask the question, are we already doing that in our HIV-positive population that we have on an antiretroviral regimen that includes hepatitis B active agents? And so there's only been a couple of studies that have addressed this. This is one that uh, looked at patients who had, were not on ART, patients who were not on hep B active ART, or were on an ART with LAM, lamivudine, tenofovir, or emtricitabine. And uh, it's quite clear if one looks at the hazard ratios, looking at the uh, comparison to the no ART arm, over a period of a couple of years, these patients were followed, so they were a high-risk group, clearly. Um, there was a significant decline, nearly 90% decline in uh, overall risk. So putting our patients on, uh, on some sort of ART regimen or prep for HIV with an agent like Truvada, tenofovir or Tricidine, will also protect against hepatitis B. Now the other question is what about treatment as prevention? Because throughout much of the developing world, uh, particularly vertical transmission is the main source of initial infection. And the children, newborns, become infected. And because they have an incomplete immune development, the thymus is still developing, they initially recognize hepatitis B virus as itself. That's why we get this long period of immunotolerance in patients with hepatitis B. Um, and the rate of chronicity in those patients and those newborns is <coughs> So the question has come up, should we be treating pregnant women to prevent transmission? Now for years we've been using HBIG um, and vaccination in newborns at the time of birth. But it turns out that it's not as effective as we thought, particularly in high-risk populations in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Japan. Uh, rates of actual transmission, even using those regimens, are still in 20 to 30% of newborns. So quite significant loss, despite using what we thought was a highly effective or effective measure. So in this study, 200 women uh, HVSAG, antigen positive pregnant women, randomized to either routine care or starting between week 30 and 32 of their pregnancy to get tenofovir 300 milligrams a day. And it uh, was well tolerated uh, overall. And you can look here, this is the control group versus the tenofovir group. Uh, all of these uh, children did receive HPV and vaccination as well. You can see that in the control group, there was still 18% uh, risk of transmission, uh, significantly lower than Stafavir group. They used a baseline viral load in the mother of 100,000 international units to determine who to treat. Um, and uh, we're now employing this in our practice, uh, um, we're actually concerned based upon other epidemiologic data that risk is probably present down to a level of about 50,000. So we screen mothers during pregnancy and, uh, and 
anyone who's tighter is 50,000, uh, we could get treatment to the hospital unless that's just before delivery. Now, the hard part of this is that pregnancy affects HPV replication potential. And uh, so you can't screen them just once. So, for example, I had a, a woman from Malawi in my office last week. Uh, we saw her before pregnancy. Uh, she was uh, very low viral load, chronic carrier. Um, viral loads around 800 or so international units. Uh, we saw her at about 20 weeks. She was 4,000. Uh, we saw her last Wednesday, 30 weeks, and on Friday, her titer came back at 47,000 international units. So now we're sort of sitting on the fence, and we're going to actually bring her in weekly. If she gets, there, there's now we're in a race, because tenofovir's effect is not instantaneous. It takes four to six weeks to have a significant drop in viral load, and so we're going to have to make a tough decision over the next few weeks about do we pull the trigger and start our own treatment. Okay, which leads us into this concept of treatment. If you've ever read the hepatitis B literature on treatment, uh, it's confusing. It's confusing because there are a variety of different terminologies that have been used through the years for what defines treatment success. And so it's hard to compare studies when everyone uses a different measure, and particularly in the early days of treatments, uh, people chose whatever definition made their drug progress. And so it's, you have to sort of go back and re-standardize. In addition, the actual tests we use changed over the years. So if you go back 15 years in the literature, everything in hep B viral loads was in copies, and now we're using international units, which requires a conversion of the numbers to get uh, to be able to do historical comparisons. So, suppression. Suppression means basically you make hepatitis B DNA decrease or go away. And it could be either one. And so, again, you need to look at the literature to see how much suppression. There was literature going back 10, 12 years ago where someone suppressed below 35,000. Uh, they considered that a success. Now we know that's not a success because the reveal study says those patients still have a significant risk of developing liver cancer. Seroconversion. So that, that became the darling of the, the 90s and 2000s. Hepatitis B antigen negative. That's one definition. Hepatitis B E antigen negative, but you had to become E antibody positive. That's harder. So some drug companies use that, some didn't in the drug development process. Durable seroconversion means once you stop a therapy, does it say stopped? And what we've come to understand is that if you had a seroconversion, we now know you probably have to continue treatment six months to a year after that before it actually stays in most patients. The hot item today is functional cure. Functional cure means HBSAG undetectable. So not just a seroconversion, not just HBSAG-DNA <coughs> not detectable, but actually, HBSAG goes away. And that's still not cure, because that CCC DNA, as well as incorporated genomic, viral DNA incorporated into the hepatocyte genome, uh, leaves you still with the opportunity for recrudescence in the future. And so only by getting rid of that can you have true uh, that is the holy grail. Can we get true cure? We think, and I'll take you through some of the data, that we are now within three to ten years of functional cure. And true cure may not occur in my lifetime. 
let's see where we're at today and how we fall short. These are the FDA-approved agents for hepatitis B treatment on the left. The newest to the list, TAF, tenofovir alfentanil. On the right, the unapproved treatments that are also effective, tenofovir antracitabine combination, or what's known as Truvada, uh, or just antracitabine, uh, which is used both, as you know, in the setting of HIV, but they are not specifically approved for HIV. <coughs> now, the next few slides, I'm going to show you some flow diagrams of processing processes or algorithms for treatment. Um, they're complex, and so I'm only going to speak to them broadly. When you see first that I've listed who made it, a puzzle, your first clue should be that we actually don't know after all of these years exactly what we're doing. So there are multiple <coughs> guidelines. There is the AASLD guidelines, the Infectious Disease Society of America guideline. The the APASO, or Asian Pacific Association for the Study of Liver Guideline, the EASL Guideline. Um, there is what's commonly called the Keefe Guideline. Uh, the, the Emmett Keefe, uh, former professor at Stanford, convened his own consensus group, which is actually the most used guideline in the United States among hepatologists. Um, and so when you see that, it means that there are areas of controversy that are so controversial and we have so little data that we end up coming together in consensus groups. And I've sat on several of these. And, and we make sausage. There's, there's so much compromise that we only agree on what we can all agree on and everything else we kind of give and take, and you're left with, this is what I do, or this is what we agreed we should do, and they all look somewhat different. So the Apostle Guidelines I like, they came out last year, they see 10 times more Hep B among the docs that established the Hep B Guidelines than all the people that developed the European and the US Guidelines. So I think that that their clinical experience they bring to it is probably the greatest. They take they break patients first into e-antigen status, e-antigen positive patients, um, and then serotic or non-serotic. Then they look at viral load. The viral load levels, I'll tell you up front, were based on a couple of papers that in the lower viral load groups. Um, had as few as 11 patients. And all of the guidelines use those lower end numbers as cutoffs based upon a tiny group of patients. Then they look at ALT levels, big differences in the management based upon ALT levels in the different guidelines. And then they tell you about levels of fibrosis, <clears throat> what you should do. Do you need a liver biopsy or not? We've come to understand in the last five years that as we have stopped doing liver biopsies for hep C, we probably have not performed enough liver biopsies for hep B. Because every study that does liver biopsy-based things finds way more patients than you find with non-invasive criteria that are deserving of therapy. Their second category is non-serotic e-antigen negative, same criteria. And then finally, they have a third group that are decompensated cirrhosis, compensated cirrhosis, or reactivation. And the bottom line with all of those is there's really no decision. You just treat They all get treated. Yes? And I presume that HIV-infected patients fit into this a little bit. And then there is the DHHS guidelines. Which, I just wanted to set up your slide. Yes, perfect. <laughs> um, and the reason that it's different is B 
because we evolved over the years. I actually sat on the DHH FB guidelines section for three cycles, and uh, uh, we evolved to if you're going to treat Hep B, you should be treating HIV and vice versa if those viruses are present in individuals. So that's where we're at now. So this is what the guidelines currently say. Prior to initiation of antiretroviral therapy, all patients who test positive for Hep B surface antigen should be tested for HPV DNA using a quantitative assay to determine the level of HPV replication. Then, because emtricitabine, lamivudine, and tenofovir have activity against both dual acting agents, if you need to treat either, you treat both with fully suppressive therapy. If HPV treatment is needed and you cannot use tenofovir, then the alternative is to use entecavir, but we never use entecavir to treat the HIV without treating the HIV because entecavir will select for HIV mutations that will render lamivudine and other nukes ineffective. What about TAF, the newest player on the block? Well, here are very recent studies looking at switching patients. Why do we do that? Well, we switch patients because TAF has less renal toxicity, less bone toxicity than tenofovir, uh, probably something we should be doing in most of our long-term treated patients, and certainly in older patients. Um, and uh, in these studies, uh, which were presented and, and partially published by uh, Joel Gallant, um, we see that uh, there's no problem with a direct switch. You just go from tenofovir to a TAF-based regimen. Um, and again, these patients, you're not generally going to be using uh, just TAF. It's going to be part of a combination therapy that, uh, of which there's now several choices. So no problems with switch. You don't lose control of either HIV or HPV in those patients. And uh, we have been slowly switching our patients over to TAF-based regimens as they come in. It's, I'm sure you all know this, but patients who are on a stable regimen, it's incredibly difficult to get them to change. But even worse are my ID colleagues who don't want to mess with making a change because this is working. But you know what? We, we have opportunities in many of our patients to change now to a better age and lower toxicities, and that's what we should be doing. Okay. So what about the one we really want, functional cure? And I know this is a busy slide and you can't see it. I will tell you what I've highlighted here. This is E-antigen positive and E-antigen negative patients looking at the various outcomes, the definitions I gave you. But if we want functional cure, the only ones that matter are the ones in red across the top are the various agents that are available and how frequently that happens. And the answer is darn infrequently with any agent that we currently have. So the best is peg interferon plus lamivudine with an average treatment time of 4.5 years in an e-antigen positive patient led to 15% functional cure most patients, standard therapies, here's patients on tenofovir, you have 10% at four years of therapy. Not very good. So this is not effective therapy to cure hepatitis. All we're doing is suppressing virus. Okay. We also We'll talk in a few minutes about what we're going to do about that going forward. But first, just a few words about HPV mutation with the agents that we use. It arises because we are treating, we are blocking the polymerase. And there is relatively low fidelity of that polymerase. It has a very high mutation rate. And 
that leads to mutations, particularly in what's called the YMDD. This is what happens clinically. Um, I was uh, I was part of the group that, that put together actually the first series on lamivudine breakthroughs and lamivudine withdrawals uh, in patients with uh, Hep B that people forgot about the Hep B in the setting of HIV infection, and this is what happened: patients would suddenly flare. They become anti-core IgM positive, and uh, they would get sick. And patients do die from this, particularly if they already have significant underlying hepatic fibrosis. And otherwise, it looks like an acute hep B. They get their flare, then they quiet down and kind of get over it, eventually become anti-core IgM negative. Um, this was a lamivudine breakthrough. We see the same thing with lamivudine withdrawal. If you're not using lamivudine withdrawal, you have a patient that's now on a regimen that includes tenofovir and tricidipine, and you stop it, it's the exact same thing. It looks just like this. Your patients will get sick. And I, it happens at least once a month in my group. We follow <coughs> 200 HIV-positive patients about 10% have hepatitis B, and uh, invariably, someone, either the patient is not adherent, stops their meds, the doc makes a switch and forgets about the hep B. Uh, we don't see that much resistance if they've been on tenofovir-based regimens. It's usually because they're just stopping to, for, because they want to switch to a different medicine. The breakthrough rates, this tells you why. These days, we pretty much only use tenofovir and entecavir because the mutational breakthroughs with other agents is quite significant. Okay, so in the time remaining, I'm going to run through a potpourri of what we can do in the next five to 10 years to cure FD. So I already showed you the life cycle. This is just the single sketch showing that entire life cycle in place. And virtually any place in the cycle where we can interfere with the process, we have a chance of leading to a functional cure. So those approaches could be virologic or immunologic. On the virologic side, we can inhibit entry or encoding. We could try and inhibit DNA processing. We could try to inhibit or cleave CCC DNA, the mini chromosome of that B. This is what we've been doing, reverse transcription inhibition with nukes. Or we can try and inhibit virion assembly. <clears throat> On the immunologic side, we can consider therapeutic vaccines or some form of immune stimulation. I'm gonna just sort of take you through briefly where we're at, because this could be the subject of a whole nother hour talk. We also need to redefine our markers, and the markers we have that are not routinely used now in clinical care, that we are coming into use as quantitative HPSAG, HBV RNA in serum, CCC DNA, and elimination of integrated DNA, the last two require liver biopsy material. It's not in the serum. This just looks at typically what happens to HBSAG in a patient treated effectively with a tenofovir-based regimen. And these are, in fact, HIV-positive patients. Uh, you can see that while DNA comes down very effectively, the, uh, the hepatitis B surface antigen doesn't really decline that much in most patients. That's why our patients remain surface antigen positive even when we suppress HPV DNA. But there are some patients that, that over a period of one to several years do drop their surface antigen, and that drop is actually a prognostic of eventually clearing. So the best predictor of clearing surface antigen is declines in surface antigen. In Europe, quantitative surface antigen testing is available. 
It is not yet commercially available in the U.S., but a couple of big national labs, Quest is about to make it available. So uh, we think that it will have a role in predicting who might be heading towards cure, but since most of our patients don't head towards cure, the current agents is not all that useful. Yeah. And where does E uh, conversion occur within this group of patients? Where does it? It, it does occur. It usually occurs uh, uh, sometime in that interim period before clearance. So does it sometimes in the mid decline? So does E clearance predict surface antigen clearance or no? Yes and no. And the reason no is that some of those patients, as you're watching them, develop through core mutation in which you can't detect the E antigen anymore. And those patients, you simply have no way of knowing. So entry inhibitors. There is an entry inhibitor. This is, this is a graphic representation of the virus binding to the specific receptor and then entering the cell into a vesicle. And we have an agent. We don't have an agent. It's a study agent. It's experimental called Mercludex B. Uh, which is a peptide that binds to the sodium torcolin co-transporting peptide. Um, it is being studied, um, and we're in discussions right now. I'm, I'm part of the ACTG planning group to actually see if we can look at this in patients with FB HIV co-infection. In studies, this is from humanized uh, mouse studies. CCC DNA acute infection was inhibited uh, with the use of this agent that's blocking binding to antibiotics. ARC520 is a gene silencing agent. And this is a study uh, looking at a group of chimps. And what this is showing, it's hard to see, but you can see the downward trends of the lines. Those are CCC DNA decreasing in liver biopsy, serial liver biopsy specimens in the chips, saying that gene silencing can limit CCC DNA. Not eliminate, <coughs> just limit it. That drug was put into human trials, very interesting, 58 patients. The E antigen patients had a very good response. The E antigen negative patients had no response. And one uh, transitional patient who's in the process of actually <coughs> converting fell in between in what was the effect of this agent. There are gene function inhibitors, uh, notably certainol, which is an inhibitor of certain one. Uh, there's something called erythrocentaurin, which is a derivative natural product of the Genshi violet plant. Um, no one knows how it works. It is being studied in a couple of uh, Asian studies right now in uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. There are targeted endonucleases, so proteins that will cut, like zinc finger nucleases, which will cut uh, the CCC DNA. Um, these have been studied in various animal models. The problem with them is all vectorization. How do you get this to the target cells that are infected? And so far, uh, lots of enthusiasm that quickly dies away. The big game on the street right now is the CRISPR-Cas9 systems. Uh, can we do targeting in, in cell models? The answer is yes. The issue with CRISPR systems is, again, targeting. What are we going to cut that we didn't want to cut? that will affect the host genome. Cyclophilin inhibition. Uh, cyclophilins are cellular proteins that, are, that facilitate protein folding um, and are involved with creating the uh, surface antigen capsids. Uh, two have been studied in Hep B, Alsporavir and MA11. Uh, in cell lines, things worked well, didn't work out so well in human studies. HAPS. Um, these are uh, uh, these this heterocyclic uh, 
aromatases, uh, and uh, they are thought to affect aberrant core particle assembly. Here's an example compared to lamivudine. Uh, again, in a cell culture system, very effective, um, but not yet in humans. There's a number of substances being looked at for hepatitis B surface antigen blockade. Uh, some appear more promising than others. Uh, again, we're several years away from really seeing something that works well. Therapeutic vaccines, this has been the darling for the last 20 years. I've been involved with several of these trials. Uh, they all start with great enthusiasm. Uh, they all have ended in largely dismal failure. Um, the one I was most recently involved in is, uh, is a trial with uh, a company called Novio. We're injecting, we're, we're using electroporation to put episodes into muscle tissue, which, which then makes uh, hidden surface antigen epitopes that we hope the patients will respond to. We'll wait and see the results. There's no results at this point. PD-1, this is the other current darling. Um, so for those of you that are not familiar with it, uh, um, chronic Stimulation leads to immune exhaustion, which takes us back to why does hepatitis B virus make all that surface antigen protein? It's a way of maintaining its chronic disease state, because that surface antigen protein leads to exhaustion of T cells through the mechanism of the PDL ligand or PDL ligand binding to a PD1 receptor which essentially turns off T-cell activation. And so if we can block that, then we can reinvigorate the cells, reinvigorate the immune response. This is what's been done in cancer chemotherapy using anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 do this. There's a lot of excitement about this. There's also a lot of fear because these agents will also stimulate autoimmunity and can lead to very severe autoimmune flares, autoimmune liver disease, neuritis, uh, colitis, so thyroid disease. Uh, GS9660 is a TLR agonist, sort of like the, what's the best thing we have in the past? It's interferon, but patients can't tolerate interferon. This binds to a receptor that stimulates interferon in hepatocytes. It works in chimps. It works in woodchucks. It didn't work in humans. This is the, the first human trial. There was no change in surface antigen or QD DNA guys. So we are not there yet. A few last words about two other things briefly. The first is where I started HCC, hepatocytic carcinoma. We do need to screen our patients. Who gets screened? This is the list from the AASLD of screening recommendations. Asian male is over 40, Asian females over 50, anyone with a family history of HCC. All people from Africa or North American blacks are at increased risk at any age. All patients with cirrhosis. And then the question is HIV. The, the EECS group, the European AIDS consortium, uh, recommends screening all patients with HIV and Hep B for cellular carcinoma. The other societies, none of them are They say just follow the other guidelines. And the answer is there's insufficient data to tell us for sure whether what to do. There is some data that suggests tumors progress more rapidly in those with HIV than without HIV. What do you do? Ultrasound every six months, but if your patient is heavy, you need a biphasic or triphasic CT or an MRI. AFP is not recommended as a screening modality by the AASLD, and every hepatologist in the world does it. It goes back to the guidelines and the sausage. Finally, transplant for HIV Hep B was studied in the NIH solid organ transplant cohort. The patients with Hep B did spectacularly. There's only about 20 centers in the country that will transplant HIV positive patients. 
Your nearest one is Mass General. They were a participant in that study. Um, so it is an option that patients do well. You need to send them to the right center. If you send them to the wrong center, they will tell them that they are not a transplanted candidate, even if they do transplants. So in conclusion, vaccination is a critical element of prevention, but current methods that are in routine practice in those with HIV are imperfect. Our treatment goal at this time is complete suppression of HPV viral replication. And when you're treating your patients with HPV, you need to make sure that you've done that or do something different. All HIV-infected patients with HPV should be on dual active therapy. Long-term suppression will, unfortunately, rarely lead to a functional cure. And we need other modalities to clear CCC DNA reservoir and achieve that functional cure status. And when you follow your patients, don't forget about screening for liver cancer. Because as a hepatologist, I can tell you, it is tragic to see a patient that is not screened that comes in with an untransplantable, unresectable tumor. These tumors double every four to six months. The window for screening, the reason it's six months, not one year, not two years, is that if you go more than six months, you could go from invisible to non-receptable, non-transplantable before you see the patient again. Thank you. I'll stop there. We have the room until 2 o'clock. I'm just happy to take any questions. I had a question about biopsy. You mentioned you think that we are
because their mechanism of what they stimulate within the cells is, is essentially an interferon-stimulated gene process. But it didn't work in the clinical trial. So in, in your plans for construction of the hospital in the water, I hope you see that, is this going to be primarily a research facility, or is it going to be patient treatment? And if so, we hope to, what is the standard of care, yes. given the fact that you can't do everything here? Right, right. So, it's not, as you probably know, not every country accepts Africa that has even access to, to not from here yet, although we're moving towards that. Um, the levels of outside personnel are extremely high. And uh, what we would like to encourage is, of course, uh, better awareness and better surveys in the population of actual uh, incidents and prevalence. And uh, then make sure that, uh, that we develop educational programs to get treaters to thinking about co-treatment of B, which is not even considered. In fact, many of the PEPFAR sites don't even have HBSAG available to them and don't know who has FB, which means that they are frequently using therapies that may or may not be effective for the HIV and they may or may not be FB active. Um, but there is something else going on in a lot of the sub-Saharan African countries related to development of liver cancer. And what we'd like to do is begin to put in place the structure to study what that is, because um, it's more than just have B. There's a big component, we think, of aflatoxin and diet that's uh, a part of that process. And uh, this, for me, is just an exploratory trip to begin to talk on a countrywide basis about What's there and what could we do going forward? Mm -hmm.